I think about this every day, right? I think about how would I destroy Barry Law? That's John Barry, Army veteran, trial attorney, and CEO of Barry Law Firm, one of the fastest growing law firms in the nation. You could take away one of our practice areas, we'll grow another one. I said, take me out, another leader will step up. We won't lose. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, I sat down with John Barry to discuss leading through adversity and the warrior ethos that has become the foundation of his firm's success. You keep your edge, you keep your cool, but you go at it like a steely-eyed, barrel-chested killer. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. If you've read my book, The Game Changing Attorney, you learned about John Barry, who I describe as the lawyer who looks like Rambo, but has an impeccable taste for tailored suits. John and I met back in 2016 at a legal conference, and the rest is history. What I remember most is that we were talking, we talked for maybe an hour about our businesses and leadership, and you didn't even pitch me, and I didn't even know about your company until you presented, and then I found out that I was the Goliath in your David story, and I knew that I had to figure out how to leverage your success with one of my competitors to make my team more competitive and more successful. And, and if we look back since that time, I mean, your firm has grown exponentially. I mean, you guys have now, I think, four years in a row on the Inc. 5000, fast growing private companies in the nation. What, what do you think has contributed to that success? Without a doubt, the leadership team. We've grown 5x in five years, and it's not because of me. It's because I chose the right people who wanted to build and develop leaders, and then they chose the right people. So there's this effect of getting the right people on the leadership team and those leaders developing the junior leaders, and then those leaders develop the leaders below them. So the growth of your subordinate leaders is going to dictate how fast you can scale. Now, we take this way back to the beginning because it's interesting. I know that you're someone who loves practicing law, but you also love aspects in terms of like leading and, and, and running the business. What, what inspired you to become a lawyer? My father was a famous trial lawyer. He was my hero. And I always wanted to be in the courtroom. I loved being in the fight. And when I could no longer be an athlete, that was the way I could still feel like I'm fully engaged in the moment. And there's no better feeling in the world, right? Whether you're you're playing at a football game, you're skiing, you're in trial, but being a lawyer, you're able to be fully engaged and just to feel that uh, the, the pressure. In a, in a criminal case, someone's life, their future is on the line. It's up to you. You got to come up. You have to show up as your best every single day. And it makes you better. The pressure makes you better, right? Pressure makes diamonds. And so I thrive in high pressure situations. And that's why I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to keep that high pressure up. And I think a lot of us make the mistake when we're young and we hear that, well, you're going to get married. Then once you become a lawyer, you're going to settle down and then you're going to be going to Home Depot and Bed Bath & Beyond and your whole life is going to change. But that's not true. Once a killer 
always a killer. And, you know, speaking of pressure, I mean, you coming into the role you're in with the firm, I mean, basically succeeding your father, this is some of the bronze star recipient, like basically three tours in Vietnam, basically wrote the book on veterans disability rights. And Gino Wickman talks about this um, when we're talking about the podcast and that there's different types of secession. There's sometimes people that secede, you know, whoever was running the firm and then just basically demolish it, right? Because go down to the ground. And it's very rare that the business actually improves and goes to new heights. And in your case, that's exactly what happened. It seems like since you took over the firm, it, it scaled that exponentially. What do you believe that you did different? Well, my father was, he was a celebrity lawyer. He had cases in, I think, 25 states, several foreign countries, had published books, was well known for his his trial skills. And he was able to develop some great teams because other lawyers saw him and said, wow, I want to I be like John Stevens Barry. And so he developed some great lawyers, but he never developed the business side of the firm. And so, you know, growing up as a kid, I think my, my father was very supportive in terms of making sure that I got the right coaching, making sure that, hey, I, I was in Boyd Epley's, uh, the Husker Training Center back when Boyd Epley was there. And for those of you that don't know, he's started Husker Power and the big weight training in the 80s and 90s that Nebraska had, which led them to uh, national dominance. So my father always tried to get me these opportunities to be coached, right? But he himself was kind of run, running himself ragged. He would be out trying a case in this state, in that state. I didn't see him a whole lot, but when I saw him, he was always very interested in what I was doing. And if it was speed and agility, this is back in the day when they didn't have speed and agility camps. My dad would find somebody and pay him to coach me or strength training or whatever it was to make me better. So he had a great influence on the under, my understanding of your best investment is always in yourself. And so he would always invest in those things for me. Now, if I wanted to buy something else, I had a, I had a paper out, I detasseled corn uh, for all the material things that was on me. But in terms of investing in yourself, he made it clear that that was a great investment for him. And it turned out really well, right? Because then I came into his firm and worked on some of the business practices that he had neglected. And now he's doing really well semi-retired, still collecting a paycheck, doesn't have to show up at work. And it's one of those things where I don't think he even saw the possibility. He just saw that, hey, I got to show up every day, win for my clients, win for my team. But what he didn't think of was how the business was performing. And, you know, there were a lot of highs and lows, as you can imagine, when you're not paying attention to the numbers. And it seems like the it's almost like you doubled down on, as you guys call it, like the warrior ethos. And it seems like that's been a very, very important part of the foundation of the firm, the success of the firm. What, what do you mean by that? Well, when you get knocked down, you get back up. There are going to be a lot of strange moments in your life where you think you're on top of the world and then wham, you're on the ground and you don't know how you got there. And for my father, he started our, our veterans law practice back in the late 90s when nobody was doing it. It was a total chance. Uh, he was doing a lot of pro bono work, but it paid off and it paid off well because he had a vision and he had warrior ethos. He knew that we may lose money on this practice, but as long as I'm in this mission of helping veterans, I don't care. And they can knock me down, but I'm going to find a way to keep the firm going so we can keep helping veterans uh, and so that I can keep developing lawyers and developing my team. Now, John, in your background, I mean, it, it definitely no slouch either. I mean, I've, you completed ranger school, you get deployments in Bosnia and Iraq and so on. But, you know, at, at what point were you like this basically decided that you were going to transition to practicing law? That was tough. I when I was commissioned as a second lieutenant, I liked the idea of going into the army for a while because I knew I was going to be a lawyer. But I loved 
my military experience. I mean, greatest time of my life showing up as a new second lieutenant in your unit. There is no better leadership lesson. When you show up as that young college grad, you've got these experienced combat veterans and they're looking for you to give them direction when training or in combat. It's crazy. And you can't control a lot of what you don't know. So you say, what can I control? And you show up neatly dressed, you shine boots. Back then it was a pressed uniform, fresh haircut, have to be in phenomenal physical shape. And those are the things you can control. Because other than your attitude, you can't control the things that are going to happen due to your lack of experience. So now as a leader of a law firm, I feel like a second lieutenant every day, right? Like I'm the new guy who doesn't know anything and I'm listening to experts and I'm trying to appear like I'm seasoned and experienced knowing that I'm not. And I don't mean that I have imposter syndrome. I'm very confident in what I'm doing, but I certainly show up every day with a beginner attitude. I want to learn and I want people to teach me whatever they're willing to teach me. And let's face it, feedback is a gift. Now you weigh feedback. Some people who give you feedback who are losers, that feedback, it's not going to help you. But when you see the people who are going where you want to go, their feedback is gold and you have to pursue it and, and really em embrace it and then be have show gratitude for it. So I've been very fortunate in, in that respect that after being a second lieutenant and having to lead when I felt like I didn't have the credentials to lead uh, has really prepared me for leading a law firm, entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's that warrior ethos because when you're at that stage and you get knocked down, it can shake your confidence. Wow, maybe I don't have the experience. Maybe I don't have the ability. But if you have that warrior ethos, you say, yeah, that may be true, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Now, I imagine your experience and you know the members of your team, their experience in the military, there's aspects of that that for sure translate to the courtroom and other facets of the business. And in fact, I would even imagine it's a competitive advantage, the fact that you've got veterans literally serving other veterans. Have you found that to be a competitive advantage? Well, it's an advantage on several levels. To build an organization that has a mission that everyone falls into, that everyone just loves, that's given us a great advantage. So when we're hiring veterans, they understand what veterans are going through and their passion is helping veterans. That has been huge. But it's also been huge for our culture. In the military, the commander has a staff, gets a lot of input, listens to the input, and then ultimately makes a decision when the commander has to make a decision. Sometimes the staff can make most of the important decisions, but then there'll be those crucial strategic decisions and the commander has to make the decision. And in the military, when the commander makes a decision, whether we agree or not, we say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and we execute the mission. And that's been great. I have friends who started law firms, been practicing for 20 years now, and they're in partnerships and they take six months to decide what color the carpet's going to be in their new office. I mean, it's crazy. And so for us, I make a lot more decisions every week. I make a lot more bad decisions, but I'm not afraid to make decisions. Uh, you, you spoke about growing five, basically five X in five years. And if you look back over the past several years, what, what do you believe a few of the decisions you made that had the greatest impact on, on your success and the success of the firm? The first decision was the decision to grow. I was fortunate that I had all these goals that I had set. And then by the time I hit about 40 years old, I hit them. I had a battalion command. I was a lieutenant colonel in the Nebraska National Guard after I served my time in the active duty. I had won about 50 jury trials. I had all these career goals that I had hit. And then it was like, what's next? And as you know, your future has to be bigger than your past. And I didn't just want to 
hang out and do nothing and, and be the guy who won the case, who's talking about it 20 years ago. And, and, and we all, as lawyers, we all know that guy who won a case 20 years ago and wants to tell everybody about it. And the courtroom hears about it over and over again, ad nauseum. And then at some point, people just stop listening to him because he hasn't done a damn thing in 20 years. So I looked at my life and I looked forward and I thought, you know, what is my life going to look like when I'm 50 years old? And I didn't want to be working 70, 80 hours a week on cases. And so that's when I decided I'm going to grow the firm. And I thought back to when I was happiest, a young second lieutenant, didn't know much, showed up in my first unit and my subordinate leaders were on fire. These guys were showing up five o'clock every morning to do PT, physical training. We train hard, work hard. They come in on weekends to train other soldiers to train the team, and they just love the mission. I thought, that's what I want to get back to. I want to be in love with going to work every day. I want to love the mission. I want to love the team. And that's when I made the decision. If I could replicate that feeling I had when I was a young second lieutenant, when I had the best platoon in the world, if I could get back to that, I could be happy forever. And so that's what I've always strived to do is, is to build that team again and to have that feeling and, and to know that we're going somewhere. Our mission is critical and we will not fail. And, and without a doubt, I mean, I, I feel like once you make that commitment, you know, that commitment to grow, it's like you basically find everything else. What, what, what were some of the other decisions that have had the greatest impact besides the decision to grow? The hiring decisions. Absolutely. Uh, I hired our general counsel and he plays defense so I can play offense. I needed someone to cover my six, someone to be paranoid for me so that I could grow the firm and grow without fear. As lawyers, we generally live in a paranoid world. And I think that's what stops a lot of lawyers from moving forward. So my decision was, I'm not going to live in fear anymore. I'm going to pay someone to do that for me. And I'm going to have a team member that their job is to cover the six while I charge forward. And you got to find the right person. And the person I chose, Andy, we'd been uh, friends for many years, a phenomenal well-respected lawyer who was also looking for the next challenge. And so it was great to find that, that person. Then from there, it was, okay, I've got my six covered. I'm playing offense. Who's next? And so it really became an issue of who can give me the next capability. And in the Army, we have a mission statement that we give in it. And it's going to tell you who, what, when, where, and why, but it never gives you the how. So the key is to hire the who and then give them the other four. They'll figure out how to do it. You don't have to figure that out. And so I started hiring people for their capabilities and for cultural fit. And so the dominoes just started falling. Once I felt secure that someone was covering my six and I could just move forward, that's exactly what I did. When John puts it this way, it can sound easy, but we all know our entrepreneurial journeys rarely go according to plan. I wanted to know about some of the challenges that John ran into as he expanded his practice over the past several years. There were many mistakes, many failures. A lot of the challenges came from lack of knowledge, hiring too cheap, knowing that we needed a lot of people. And then we jumped in and said, okay, I need someone right now. I need someone right now. And oh, that person's too expensive or that person's too expensive. What we failed to do is we failed to forecast our hiring needs and we failed to develop a good hiring process. And so what we found was we were not getting those superstars. And it was because we weren't planning to get superstars. And it was because we didn't decide to get superstars. Because if you decide you're going to hire superstars, then you start taking the steps. And for us, it was very reactionary. There wasn't much of a plan to it. And even though there was a business plan, and I said, okay, I'm going to hire three more attorneys this year, or six more attorneys this year, or 10 more attorneys. I never 
walked back far enough and did that backwards planning to say, okay, if I need 10 new attorneys by the end of the year, that means we're going to have to start the hiring process now because three months out, this is what it needs to look like. As you know, all hiring is a funnel. And if we're going to get six good attorneys, that means I'm probably going to have to interview 40 good attorneys and then get the six best. And so it's just one of those things that you don't know what you don't know until it's too late and you get kicked in the face and then you learn. And pain is a teaching tool. Pain teaches us so many great things. And when we failed, failed to hire the right person, failed to have the right type of insurance, failed to have the right systems, that's where we've learned. And we've gotten a lot better at that. So I think to say that you make a decision and it happens is complete bullshit. That's not how it happens. You make a decision, you fight through it, and eventually it does happen. But you have to have that warrior ethos. You got to get up every time you get knocked down. And and in talking about you know, let's let's shift over to to you know to leadership. What what do you believe separates the good leaders from the just from the great ones? Feedback. Feedback is a gift. And as a leader, you need to see that feedback. You need the 360 degree feedback. You need it from your bosses. You need it from your peers. You need it from your subordinate leaders. If you can't take feedback and your ego gets in the way, you will not grow. You will fail. Without a doubt. Now, let's talk about even even bigger picture. What do you think separates good law firms from the elite ones? The elite law firms have the elite systems. I've seen some good law firms with phenomenal attorneys But the problems that they run into are due to a lack of systems, a lack of decision making in terms of making a bigger vision come into fruition. A lot of times they may have a vision, but they're not making the day to day decisions to get there. It's almost like they've made a decision. They're committed, but something's missing. Somehow they cannot paint that vision. They can't paint the picture of the vision for their team to see and They're always on the cusp of becoming great or elite, but they just stay good. And for some of them, it's fear. Oh my gosh, we've got 20 lawyers now. I don't want 25 or I don't want 30. When, you know, the reality is this, is that you can't accomplish some missions till you get to a certain size. I had to make that decision. Do we grow the veterans law practice nationally? Do we grow a lot bigger? And their compelling reason was we can't make a difference to our veterans if we don't. We'll never have a voice unless we get to a certain size that we decided. And we said, that's the size we're going to get to. That's what we're going to do. And once we're there, things are going to start to change. Now, hopefully we're changing things along the way, but we have a destination. And along that destination, we're helping a lot of veterans. We're supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States in, in, in courtrooms, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case. So we're doing a lot of good, but we have a final destination. And I think a lot of the good firms that ever become elite, they really haven't decided to become elite. They haven't decided to be the best of the best. And when you don't decide, you stop making the sacrifices. And I may be unusual, but once I decide something, it's done. If I decide I'm going to lose 10 pounds in the next month, it's going to happen. I'm going to drink a ton of water, eat a ton of vegetables, protein, no carbs, and I'm going to make it happen because I've already made that decision. Now I don't need even need to think about it. But I think where most of the mediocre firms or even good firms struggle, they've got some rock star talent, but they don't maximize it because they haven't built the systems. They haven't made the investments. And I think for a lot of it, it comes from fear. And the other half of it comes from the need for a group consensus, 
right? Instead of an individual leader making a decision, they need a group to get together and come to a consensus. Now, sometimes we have small group consensus, but we're never waiting for the whole group to make a decision. And I have to tell you as a leader, you have to be very careful because on one hand, if you are very decisive and you're not taking in any information, your team's going to stop feeding it to you. But on the other hand, if you're taking in information all the time and always doing what the team tells you, people are going to think that you're weak and that you can't make a decision. And you know what? Sometimes that's okay. I once had a one of our leadership team members came to me after a meeting and said, who's in charge anyway? He said this, you said that. What are we going to do? I said, well, go with what he said. He knows the ground better. In the military, the commander on the ground makes the decision because they have a better vision of what's going on. You know, you hear about the beach ball, right, where you can only see one side of the beach ball, but other members of your team can see the other side of it. So you, you alone do not have the vision of everything that's going around you to get to where you need to be, but your team does. And so you need to shut up and listen to your team. That being said, you have to hire the right people first. But when you just stop and listen, you can figure out that most problems are not that bad. Back in the military, one of the things I learned in ranger school, we did something called SILs. And what that was, you'd come out of your patrol base and everybody would just raise your hand, you'd stop, just freeze, and just listen. And as you'd listen, you'd hear the sounds of nature, but you'd also hear what was going on. And once you became finally attuned to what was going on in your environment, then you would know when the enemy was coming. But that simple little sills exercise, stop, listen, get focused, then you're ready to execute. But until you can listen to your team, you're not a leader. John, there's something you said earlier that when you decide something, it gets done. And then, and that's the experience I've always had with you. I, so I know that that to be true, but what are some of the, the ways in which you ensure that's the case? Because clearly that's not the case for, you know, for everybody who's listening to this podcast. I'm sure they love to have ways to be more effective in what, when, in whatever it is they set out to do. But are there certain things that you put in place or whether it's certain habits or practices or even accountability to, to ensure that those things come to fruition? So when I was a Bradley platoon leader, we had a, the tow missiles in the Bradley and, uh, company that created the missile launch system, their, their motto was fire and forget. You fire the missile, it's going to reach the target based on the system. And so that's that's the way I look at it. I hire people who are fire and forget. If I send you an email, you're going to get it done. I'm not going to look at the task again. I'm assuming you're going to get it done. And if, if that doesn't happen, then I've chosen the wrong person. Now, do we have accountability systems in place? Absolutely. We're a highly accountable leadership team. We call each other out. Meetings have a lot of tension. We don't give a lot of unnecessary compliments. We give compliments when they're earned, but it's very much in your face. This is the objective. These are your key measurements. Now go hit the objective. And so I, I I've seen law firms that are very good at measuring individual tasks. They keep great amounts of data that they're able to analyze to be able to tell you if someone's on track. For us, we have every attorney has a scorecard. They have numbers that they're supposed to hit and we expect them to hit them. And if they don't, then at the end of the quarter, we're going to have a conversation and we're going to talk about how I can help you hit those targets. And the next quarter, if you don't hit those targets, well, if I can't help you hit the targets, then no one can, right? Now, maybe it's about you. If, I, if I'm not a good enough leader or my team is not providing you with the leadership that you need to get to the next level, then maybe we're the wrong organization for you. 
So it comes down to people. I mean, there's great ways to measure and manage numbers and stuff, but at the end of the day, you need fire and forget people. You launch that round down range, you expect it to hit. And if you can't do that, then every day you're going to be second guessing your team and second guessing your own decisions. Now, on that note, John, and I'd love your your thoughts on this, but like I think today we live in a society or culture where they see any type of turnover as a bad thing. And uh, I will say, you, you know, you may be many things, but you're definitely not indecisive. And I think you're easy to work with when somebody is on track, but you basically made it a non-negotiable to not do the things that you say you're going to do. How do you view that? If, if someone does, let's say they don't work out at the firm or what have you, you have to make a decision where you have to, let's say, free somebody up, find somebody else. Like, do you do you look at that with regret or do you view that as, as progress? No, I mean, I've never fired someone too soon. I had one case where maybe I thought I did and then it turned out I didn't. And I would tell you that a lot of times we're doing that person a disservice. If we're keeping someone around who's not a cultural fit, and the way we look at it is it's, it's like a, a, a train track, right? On one side, it's whether they're a cultural fit and, and whether they live up to our core values. And on the other side, it's the metric. And if they can't stay on that train track, then they can't be here. And maybe they're just not a good fit, or maybe we're not doing a good job developing them. But at the end of the day, if we lose somebody, I'm okay with that. And that was very tough for me coming from a military background where they gave us our soldiers and said, if your soldiers fail, you can't get rid of them. You may be able to reassign them to somebody, but you can't get rid of them because they were good enough to get in the military. They were smart enough. They were physically fit enough. They were determined enough. They got past uh, boot camp. They're your soldiers. And if they can't perform, you as a leader have failed. And I believe that for a long time. But the truth is you could do everything right and it still won't work out for you. Now, that being said, we hired a rock star a couple months ago, and uh, she got a, an amazing job offer, and she's going to take it. And that's great. When people leave for the right reasons, where they came here, they love the firm, they become part of our alumni program, and they leave, it, it, it's, it's a good thing. If someone gets an opportunity better than what we're providing them, something we can't provide them, I love that. In the military, it was the same way. The best leaders got promoted. You knew you were always going to lose your best leaders. It was only a matter of time. And the better they were, the more likely it was that the headquarters element was going to snatch them up and give them a position of higher authority. And so for us, what we try to do is build a system where all of our team members have the opportunity to advance. So there is a career path for every position. But for some people, there are things they want to do outside of this. If you want to be a ski instructor, Barry Law does not have a ski instructing team yet, although I'd like that. If you want to go out and, and, and go into politics and, and become the president of the United States, well, you, you're probably not going to do that while working here. You're probably going to, that's going to be your full-time job. But people that want to go into politics, people that want to go into different fields, they have dreams. We want them to realize those dreams. And when those people leave, that's great. That's the kind of person you don't want to retain because it's not good for them and you don't want them to resent you. On the other hand, where we have people that aren't performing and they leave on their own without being terminated, that's great too. They knew they weren't a good fit and so they left. I mean, we've had some people who were phenomenal for us for first two or three years, uh, some people more than 10 years. But as we've grown, I've had this conversation with some of our senior attorneys. Hey man, I'm not going where you're going. I really liked it. When we had 10 people and we had this practice where we'd all hang out and talk about cases, but now everything is automated and there's a lot less human interaction and I've got all these metrics to deal with. This just isn't what I want. 
and we say, okay, that, that, that's great. I mean, I value your friendship and I value everything you did to help us along the way. You're a valued member of the team. You'll always be a member of the team, but I get it. We're going in a different direction and nobody's going to stay on the train forever. At some point, people are going to get off. And at some point, I'm going to get off. At some point, they're going to fire me or uh, someone's going to buy me out or, or whatever it's going to be. But I realize that my position is not permanent. Nobody's position is ever permanent. And that's the way we should see it every day. That's how we have gratitude for our team. No one's going to be in that position forever. And the good news is if you're in a shitty position, it's not going to last forever. But also knowing that there's the ability to change course and do these other things is helpful. And so when people come here, we generally see that the people who want to work here are goal oriented. And some of them want to be here for a while. Some of them want to be here for a short period of time. It's a stepping stone. And that's fine. I'm completely fine with that because ultimately it's about the team you build, the leaders you build. And at the end of the day, my proudest moments will not be the things that I accomplished, but the things that my team accomplished. And more importantly, what those subordinate leaders accomplished. I'm hoping one of my junior leaders comes up and, and destroys me, right? And it was brought up here and became one of the largest law firms in the United States and destroyed Barry Law Firm. But they grew up here and we have the pride of working with the future of the legal system. And, and quite frankly, that there's no better compliment than seeing your subordinates surpass you. How do you define success? Is that it? Winning. Winning every single day. Winning consistently. You know, I don't know that people talk about being successful. I don't consider myself to be successful. I consider myself a winner when I win. When I lose, I learn. But I don't say, yeah, I'm successful. I made it. Now, some people will say, but John, this is where you are financially. Look at your firm. You guys made Inc. 5000 four years in a row. You're a fellow of the American Board of Criminal Lawyers. You have all these great things that you've accomplished. You're successful. I have a lot of successes, but I'm always hungry. As soon as I get that one success, I want the next one. So do I define success as personally, yeah, as a leader? I want to develop more leaders. I get a guy who's going to blow past me as a better lawyer than I'll be, a better business owner. I love that. But I want 10 more of those. There's never enough success. It's, it's, it's an addiction, but it's a good addiction to have. Because if we know there's never enough success, it's infinite, which means I don't have to be jealous because my competitor is extremely successful. No, there's no limit to success. Everybody can be successful. And the more you get, the more you want. Kind of like sugar. It, it becomes addictive. But the, the truth is there's no better feeling. And, and that the reason why it's so important to develop leaders is because all that success by yourself is lonely. Right. But once you have those wins and you can share those with your team and see your team members develop, those wins are so much sweeter. That success is so much better because you made a difference in somebody else's life. John has been very intentional about the Barry Law Firm brand as he has grown and scaled his organization. But how does he leverage it to differentiate and set his firm apart? We are America's veterans law firm. Now, we are a brand within a brand because we are so invested in defending and protecting constitutional rights. We, we still try several personal injury cases, criminal defense cases. I'm a trial lawyer. I love to get in the courtroom. But our real brand is the, is the veteran's brand. As a veteran, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. You take a similar oath as a lawyer. And so for us, that really is the brand. It is the veteran brand, the Americans serving Americans, veterans serving veterans. And at the end of the day, people who agree with our values and our brand come to us 
and people who don't, don't come to us. And that's great. I don't want everybody's case. I want to know who I can be a hero to. And so I, the great thing is when I wake up every morning, I get to decide. I get to decide who I'm going to be a hero to. And that's part of your brand. You have to make that clear in your brand so that you can attract the right people. And when the right people come in the door, they're always going to be the right fit. And you're always going to say the right thing because they believe what you believe. They've already bought into your brand. Right? They were already bought into your brand before they heard of you because they know, hey, we love our veterans. We respect our veterans. We honor our veterans. We support and defend the Constitution of the United States. We want our rights protected. Those people know those things before they even hear about Barry Law. Then they hear about Barry Law and like, oh, yeah, I like these guys. I would hang out with them. As a matter of fact, I'd be on that team and I want to be on that team. And if I'm in trouble, I want them to fight for me. So in many ways, you don't draw people to your brand. They've already been drawn to those things. They are who they are. The key is you have to push out who you are so they can find you and know that you are the right fit for them or that you're not. Now, veterans in particular, I mean, this this is a group that I feel can kind of sniff out the BS. They can kind of sniff out the charlatans and everything, if you will. But it, it's interesting when you see like ads online for most law firms, not even geared towards veterans. There's many people that are going to be critical of criminal defense lawyers, personal injury lawyers, and so on. But whenever you guys are running ads, the comments are always like, thank you, Barry Law Firm, for all that you do. We're so grateful for you. Like, why do you think that is? Well, they see that we're genuine. If you look at some of the 3M ads or even some of the other veteran law firm ads, they've got the guy in the uniform that's all screwed up. It's not right. And veterans can see that, right? And so a lot of these stock photo groups, they, they take photos that are so outrageously inappropriate. The veteran with facial hair, with his boots untucked, wearing a civilian baseball hat. There's things that you just don't do in the military. And especially if they're wearing uh, the Marine Corps camis and, you know, Marines will just have a field day with this and say, well, they'll make fun of these people all day long. But more importantly, they see that these people are not genuine. They're not their people. It's not their tribe. And so they don't want to do business with them. So a lot of people that come to us, they know that my father was a Vietnam vet, Sir three tours, wrote a book called Those Gallant Men in Vietnam, where he defended the commander of the 5th Special Forces in a murder case, Sapita Nixon, and got the case dismissed. They know that we're trial lawyers, but they also know that we've helped thousands of veterans. And, and our clients, of course, are our, our best resource because when we win a case for a veteran, they're going to talk. And when we lose, they're going to talk. But it's amazing within the veteran community, how tight it is. And a lot of veterans just want to help other veterans. A lot of veterans, that's their mission. What can I do to help my fellow veterans? And when we help one veteran, word of mouth spreads quickly. And then we hear from other people. And I love it because our heroes are telling us their, their battle stories. This is what happened. This is what happened in Vietnam. This is what happened during Desert Storm. This is what happened in Iraq. This is what happened in Afghanistan. And we're able to soak that in, to hear that. And they tell us, hey, it feels like I'm coming home, like someone's actually listening to me. I mean, there's no better feeling than getting to be a hero to your heroes. So, John, I imagine people are going to be listening to this. What would it take in your, in your view to put you guys out of business? What, what would someone have to do? They can't. I think about this every day, right? I think about how would I destroy Barry Law? I do a, you know, a pre-mortem. And the reality is this, you could kill me tomorrow, but I've got so many great leaders on my team. The team would grow and flourish without me. In fact, they'd probably do a lot better. In many ways, I'm a bottleneck and I know it. And as a leader, I, I hate that. But you can't stop Barry Law. You can't put us out of business. We've got a great team. 
great systems. But at the end of the day, we've got the backing of the veterans, America's greatest treasure. Uh, it's like saying, what would you do to destroy the United States of America? You can't do it. And it's the same thing with us. We won't be put out of business because we won't let anybody do it. Uh, you could take away one of our practice areas. We'll grow another one. I said, take me out. Another leader will step up. We won't lose. Now, especially when we talk about, you know, in a COVID world, right, that, that this has had an effect on probably most, not all businesses in America. And I remember you mentioned this before we jumped on that you, you guys have recently tried a case. If you could speak to that, what was that like trying a case in, uh, in a COVID world? Sure. So I represented a young man falsely accused of sex assault and we had to select a jury and they're all wearing masks and we're social distancing. And it was a strange venue too, because we had to have a place bigger than the some of the large rooms in the courthouse. So we used the uh, Scottish Rite Temple, the Masons, and it was this huge, beautiful, ornate building. And there was such a sense of heaviness and history in it. We went in there and all the jurors are wearing masks and they're all six feet apart. And I'm trying to figure out if I sound better with my microphone, with a face shield or with a mask. And at first it was pretty confusing, but after a while it really turned out turned out well. And it's tough because we know as trial lawyers, most communication is nonverbal. And so we can't see people's mouths moving. They're answering questions. Some of them, what they say is muffled. It's difficult at first, but once you get used to it, uh, it felt good. It felt great to be back in the courtroom. You forget how much you miss it. And so it started off a little bit awkward. I was concerned that because my client was wearing a mask, how does that... you know, protect his presumption of innocence. I was worried about when I cross-examined witnesses, whether I could read their body language or whether the jury would read their body language. And I was worried about the jurors being concerned about COVID because on one hand, we had people who were very concerned about their health. And then we had other people who were business owners who had just laid off a bunch of people. And then who's running the business if they're in jury service? So it was a very difficult time to be in trial. But For us, we won. We got the not guilty verdict. It was the right verdict. Our client was extremely happy, but it is tough going into the unknown. But as a business leader, you're used to going into the unknown. And I'm I'm grateful for my experience as a criminal defense lawyer because I've been in cases where the judge is mad at you, the prosecutor hates you, your client has lost faith in you, but you got to show up and you got to try that case. And as a business leader, Mike, you know what that's like, where you show up and it seems like the whole world is against you, but you're going to go in there, you're going to do your best, and you know you're going to come out on top. Clearly, John has honed his craft over the years. I asked him to elaborate on the top lessons he learned as he grew both as a trial attorney and a leader. I am extremely grateful that, that my father pointed me in that direction. You know, he did tell me when I was going to become a lawyer, he did say, you know, you could go off into corporate law and do some other things. He said, you'll never get rich being a criminal defense lawyer, which is true. So for all those lawyers that are thinking, well, I'm going to be a solo and I'm going to do this. There are some that I know that are solos that are, that are amazingly wealthy. But for most lawyers, and they say they want to build wealth, right? you're not going to get there on your own time. It's about building a team, building systems so that you can spend your time on the highest and best use of your time. And getting back to your question earlier about the mediocre or good firms that aren't great, the lawyers spend too much time doing stuff they shouldn't be doing, doing non-lawyer tasks. For me, I love to try cases and that's where I spend most of my time. I'm not a big fan of, of 
spending a whole lot of time working up a case. I used to do that all the time, but now I hire lawyers who are better than me to work up the case. I'm with them every step of the way, but they're doing the stuff that might be boring to me or stuff that maybe I'm not that good at. And then that way, by the time we're ready for trial, it's go time. And I'm fired up because I know my team did absolutely everything to put us in the best position. As I review everything, uh, if I find problems, we fix it. But I'm thinking, wow, if I would have done all this on my own, I could never have prepared for trial the way I'm prepared right now. So being a criminal defense lawyer, once again, knowing that there are going to be moments where you're going to be outspent by the government, they're going to have the investigators, they're going to have the experts. Your client may not be the most attractive client. Your client may be ugly. Your client may look guilty. Uh, your client may be mad. Your client's parents may be mad. The judge may be mad because you're filing all these motions to try to narrow down the case to the battlefield that you can control, right? So you're just destroying all these other targets to, to really narrow down the case to the issues uh, that you think you can win. And, and of course, by then, prosecutors mad at you, but you're not there to please everybody. You're there to defend your client. You're there to get a result for your client. And it's the same way with your team, right? You're there to get a result. So I'm not here to please people who say, well, you know, the lawyer should do this or a lawyer should be that. No. We have ethical rules that we follow. We have laws that we follow. But so many people put so much bullshit out there that is not true that they think this is what a lawyer has to do and this is what a lawyer has to be that is just not true. And it comes from the law professors. It comes from some of the solo practitioners. And by the time these lawyers have been in practice 5, 10, 15 years and they're burnt out and they don't know why, they're not even capable of seeing things from the lens of, gee, maybe I don't need to do all these things. And sometimes it comes from the perspective of saying, I'm worth it. I mean, Mike, I don't want to hire a lawyer who's cleaning his own toilet, right? So some people think, well, I got to do yard work. I got to, I got to clean the toilets. I got to, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. You become the best lawyer you can and you pay someone else to do that. Delegate, elevate, you find your unique ability and that's where you work. And when you're in your unique ability and you have a great team, that's where you're going to find success. And I think the problem that a lot of attorneys run into is they think that they have to do all these things that they don't need to do. Someone's been lying to them. And the law school is not going to teach you how to run a law firm. Now, I've heard there are some that are starting to do that now. But even then, there's one thing to talk about theory. It's another thing to get out there and get your teeth kicked in. I mean, what are you going to do the first time you have a lawyer that works for you that doesn't show up for a court date? Or you get a bar complaint. What are you going to do when there's a malpractice suit filed against one of your lawyers? What are you going to do when you can't pay overhead? What are you going to do? You can talk in theory all you want. But when you have to make decisions that affect your team and affect their families, that's a whole nother level. And just understand that high standards are high standards and, and bad things are going to happen. Yes, people are going to give you negative online reviews. People are going to take your business. Someone like Mike McGill is going to come up with some new product. Your competitor is going to take it. And while you're asleep, they're going to take a portion of your business. You're not even going to know about it until you go to a conference and you see them talking about it. Right. But you can't control that. But you do always control how you respond. And it's important to respond in a way that you keep your edge, you keep your cool, but you go at it like a steely-eyed, barrel-chested killer. Well, so, John, I have to ask, it seems like your dad certainly found the right who in you to, to take over. What, what does he think about all this and the direction of the firm? Yeah, he loves it. I mean, my, my father was an amazing lawyer. In fact, the last 10 years of his practice, he was on a radio show. He was the drive-time radio show guy where they were paying him. You know, lawyers pay to be on radio now. 
4 to 6 p.m. In, in a major city, you know, in a major city, imagine that. Imagine how much revenue that would drive. So he was a lawyer up till four o'clock, and then from four to six, he had the John Stevens Berry show. And so he was a great promoter, but he loves it because he likes the fact that we're promoting the firm, getting the firm out there. He absolutely loves the marketing, the business stuff. Uh, he doesn't want to understand it, but he he loves the way we're winning trials. I still go back and ask him for advice on, on some cases, just go back and go over the facts. He loves to mentor our new attorneys. Uh, he loves to see how this has grown. For him, legacy is very important. I can't say that legacy will be important to me, but for him, it, it's extremely important. And to be fair, as a father, he was very invested uh, in us as children, always wanting to help us, hiring us coaches, telling us you can do anything you want, but you got to go full speed. He was the first person I ever heard say, it's either hell yeah or fuck no. You, if you're going to go, you're going to go all in. And, and there's no two ways about it. And so I think that for him, it's, it's kind of a, a sense of pride for him that, uh, that his name lives on. And of course, he's had his share of, of uh, warrior ethos moments where he's been kicked in the face. And he says, you know, now I look at those, those things and look at where we are today. And so I think as a parent, he's extremely proud. But more importantly, I think as the founder of the firm, right, he let go of the firm and it flourished. And I think there's a lesson we can all learn from that, which is sometimes if you let go of the reins, and let your team take it. It's great. I hope that I was a good investment for him. But understand, it was an investment. He paid for my coaching, uh, helped me with my education, but more importantly, uh, set a great example of what a champion is. And I can go try a case anywhere in the state, even outside the state, and people tell me what a ferocious advocate my father was, but also what a collegial gentleman he was, going out with uh, the opposing counsel for steaks and drinks after a, hear after a trial, uh, but always congratulating people if they beat him, and really you know, being the, the gentleman and, and also being a renaissance man. And so to look at this, I imagine he's, he's very proud because he wanted to build a legacy. His father started a company in Iowa called Barry Lumber Company, and he owned about 10 lumber yards in Iowa. Uh, he sold them all on time. And now, of course, there's Home Depot. So we got out of that. But it was, you know, his, his father was a businessman. So in many ways, he gets to see the success that his father had as a businessman. But also he got to run his, he had the opportunity to find his own path as a trial lawyer. So he got the best of both worlds and he's had a great and amazing life. I only hope that my life is as good as his in terms of when I look back and I'm in my 80s. I hope that I have passed on a great firm that has continued to grow and that I see my subordinate leaders surpassing me. And John, as we uh, as we come to a close, this being the, the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer means understanding the absolute rules and then getting rid of everything else. Understanding the environment in which you must play and then getting rid of all the crap that doesn't matter. A game changer understands that fair is a word used by spectators. But those of us that are fighting in the game know that there's no such thing as fair and not fair. And so we know that there are some rules we're going to have to follow. But if it's not a real rule, then we need to create rules that will help us be successful and help our teams be successful. I want to thank John Barry for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when John mentioned that feedback is a gift. And as a leader, you need to see that feedback and get 360 degree feedback from everyone around you. If you can't take feedback and your ego gets in the way, not only will you not grow, you'll set up your firm for failure. 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with John Barry, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time as we welcome best-selling author of Radical Candor, Kim Scott, to the podcast. We'll talk about how you can be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity and how you can create bullshit-free zones where people love their work and working together. So Radical Candor means the ability to care personally about someone at the same time that you challenge them directly. And to me, that's the essence of being a good boss. Uh, it is really, it's, it's actually the essence of having a good relationship, period. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 o